If you want to grab a seat, you can turn to Romans chapter 12. We'll be there in a few minutes. Um, but to kind of help us move into our time of focusing on Jesus and the kind of focusing on what we've been talking about the last month or so with our rhythm, a whole and holy rhythm of Sabbath and work, Cohen's going to read from us from Colossians chapter 3. Go ahead, buddy. And every way in which you make, manufacture, construct your life in the word and actions, do it in all loyalty and submission to the Lord Jesus, with a singular focus of heart, in awe and in wonder in the presence of the Lord. Whatever you do, work from the soul, it's for the Lord and not for the man. I know we've said this a lot during this series, but let me just say it again. A reborn, resurrected, after Easter life is a life whole, a life complete and at peace and in peace. And it's a life that's holy. It's a life set apart for something purposeful. We say whole and holy, that's what we mean. A life complete, at and in peace, shalom and the shalom of God's good design and destiny. And a life holy, a life set apart for something purposeful, for the service of the Lord. A life formed by God, a life that is also, even though it's a life being formed, it's also a life that's fashioning something. It's not just that you're being fashioned, it's that you're fashioning something. It's a life kept that is also a life cultivating, doing work and resting in beat with God's good design and destiny. His creating and recreating rhythm of Sabbath into work, work into Sabbath and back again. That's the way that we live. That's the, that's the created order in which we take part in. Six days of holy labor, one day holy resting in every season, is, according to our scripture, the calendared cadence of the kingdom of God at hand in the midst of you. This is the rhythm and cadence and flow of the kingdom. Six days of holy labor, one day holy, completely at peace, resting in every season, regardless of what season of life we find ourselves in. The tension and difficulties we encounter in this entering the kingdom of heaven life on earth, experiencing wholeness and holiness of life with God here and now, even as we make our way into forever, the tensions that we feel are often, if we're honest, attributed to our scheduling issue, right? If I only had more time, we think, I'd be more consistent in being with God. I'd be more consistent in doing the things of faith, reading my Bible, doing my quiet times, all the practices, right? Or, if only I be, were better at managing my time, we say I'd be more able to serve others. If I was a better steward, if I was better able to organize, if I had the, certain gifts or abilities to, to structure, I could, I could be a part of something more than I am a part of. If only, if only I get through this season where career or family or finances or study or marriage or calling are so demanding we tell ourselves, if only then, I'd be more faithful to the daily details of faith. If only I could get just past this time, right, whatever this time is, this season, whatever this season is, then I would be where I need to be and be who I'm meant to be. And while it's true, as Annie Dillard says, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives, it's also true that changing our schedule rarely changes us or those with whom we relate and have responsibility to. Sure, a different schedule can help us. Different routines are helpful. Different rhythms are helpful. Different, different routines are helpful. Different habits are helpful. Different practices are helpful. But in the end, those things can't transform. The truth is, a change of schedule without syncing up to God's created and recreated ryth rhythm. His rhythm of, again, not just six days of working, one day of resting, but six days of holy labor, holy work, one day of holy resting in His finished work, only when we sync up with that rhythm does life, do, we get, do we get to live a life that's not on a loop. When the updated schedule, for instance, like when we think about it, think about your own, your own history and your own relationship with the Lord and in, with faith. Um, when you kind of get excited about a new rhythm or routine or practice or even just a vigor of like wanting to know the Lord more, right? You've put together your, a new schedule of things to do to help you be able to engage with the Lord, engage with others, whether that is something that's uh, silence and solitude, a quiet time with the Lord, or maybe it's a ministry that you really feel called into, something outside of yourself that you're doing, and you kind of give yourself wholly over to it, and you fit, your, fit it to work your schedule. But inevitably, at some point, that schedule loses energy of its newness, right? 
at some point, the, the thing that's new and energetic becomes old and routine and boring. Or if, if it maybe it doesn't even get a chance to. Inevitably, perhaps the schedule's newness changes because life changes, circumstances change. Stuff happens that you no longer can keep a, to be a part of the thing that you love or in rhythm with the thing, the practice or schedule that you so thought would change your life. And what happens when that happens is you return to where you started. You experience again a dryness, a weariness, a lostness, the affliction of the soul, as our scripture would call it. If we desire, and as I believe we do, to be ones who don't experience the kingdom life, a life free and purposeful with God and others, as merely a seasonal phenomenon, if we don't want kingdom living just to be a seasonal thing, but the constant reality of our daily living, never ceasing to bear fruit is the way the psalmist describes such a life, that in every season we're tapped into the life-giving reality of God with us, God for us, that, our, the, that the, the psalmist describes both in Psalm 1, at the beginning of Psalm, and Psalm 92, our Sabbath psalm, of being so tapped into the to life with God, that the leaves never, never, never wither. That fruit is always the product of the tree. The tree never, never gives up its actual production. If we want that to be our story, to be our lives, to be what the psalmist prays and believes that we can experience, then we as our scriptures testify, and as we've discussed this past month, must grow into being ones whose rhythm is to spend a day in holy rest and spend a week in holy work. Like This is the rhythm of life that is calling us into the rhythm of life with God. This is what we need to do to be ones who can, again, I think be the people that we desire to be and be a part of God's life the way we desire to be a part of God's life. But in case you don't believe me, which is fine, here's what the Apostle Paul says to the faith family of Thessalonica, those who he dubbed in 1 Thessalonians 1 as the example to all believers. The example to all believers, Paul says this, Aspire to live quietly. Literally, rest from the labor that is not yours. Sounds a lot like Sabbath, right? Aspire to live quietly. Strive after it. Go after it. Be ones who actually rest from labor that's not yours. And attend to the work made for you. Rest and work. Rest and work. Rest and work. You've heard all of this from us before, but a reminder never hurts. We want you living in a way that will command the respect of outsiders able to live dependent on no one. Paul encourages the example of the faithful to live in rhythm through which they are kept informed. They're dependent on, not on the circumstances or their society for their wholeness, for their holiness, for their happiness, for their completeness of life, and through which they are competent and capable fashioning and cultivating a life that has, that literally the word to uh, commend to the outsiders means a quality that must be sought from, from what follows. That a way of living that compels others to have to respond to that way of living, to follow that way of living, to recognize the goodness, the wholeness, the completeness of that way of living. A rhythm of life that changes us and at the same time changes the world. A going in and out from a day in holy rest into six days of holy work. Now here's what we've said about the holiness of work so far. We have said that work is what we're made for. That we are created to work and to keep the very good of our little gardens. This was before sin even disrupted it. Work is what we're made for. Work is a good thing. It's the God, it's the it's what we've been given in our God-determined and allotted periods and boundaries of our dwelling place. But not only are we made for work, work then is whatever we do, with words or in deeds, at our home or in the office, by obligation or by preference, to cultivate life, to make and maintain the good, or not. Work is whatever we do to cultivate life, our work, says Pastor Tom Nelson, whatever it is, whether we are paid for it or not, is our specific human contribution to God's ongoing creation to the common good. And so, as Dorothy Sayer said, the only Christian work is good work well done. The only Christian work is good work well done. Work is what we are made for. Work is whatever we do. Not just what we get paid for, but whatever we do to cultivate life, to maintain life, to make life. 
And so therefore, the only Christian work is work that is, is good work well done. And so we said, what is, how do we work well? Well, we work well by loving that for which we work and those with whom we labor. To work with the soul in loyalty and submission to the Lord Jesus, as Paul encouraged and, and Cohen read for us, is to give our complete self to the places and people with whom we make such a life. Such wholehearted giving over to the very good of another cannot be coerced through religious duty, nor as a manipulation for earnings. Our soul can only be so committed through love. Only in love can our labors in living be in harmony with the very good of God's creating and recreating. That's what we said. In love, through love, for love, we can experience not only the whole and holiness of our labors of living, but also the blessedness of submitting to the love of that and for those for whom we've been made. In loving, we get to experience the wholeness and holiness, but we also get to experience the thing that honestly, like all philosophy has been after, every human civilization has been after from at least a written, written word time. Wendell Berry describes it like this, one person's revelation of the grace of loving work. A guy named Andy, he says, loved his work. The daily care of his place, the daily waiting for words, the things he did with his hands, the things he spoke and created with his, with his words. As it was human work, it could not be free of trouble that from time to time would come to it. We all know that work isn't easy. That because of the fall, because of our sin and brokenness, because of the brokenness of the world and the patience of God, not to destroy, but to long for all to come to wholeness, means work is going to be difficult. Not always easy. And so, Difficulty comes to it. Trouble comes to it at times. But at the same time, it also had a constant inherent of pleasure, even a joy. Their work can be a place, a thing of joy. Can, there can be something joyful in work. His work, Andy thinks, the love that was in it, the love that he put into it, the love that was there for the taking within it, the love that it was for, has given him a happy life. A happy life, a complete life. Only when we love something can we give ourselves to it in a way that doesn't degrade us and doesn't, doesn't twist the thing that we love. Only in a true love, like in a, in a genuine love, can we, actually, can we actually give ourselves in a way that's, that's good. And can we actually give ourselves to something to give, to to in a way that allows us to have the, to put in the energy and the effort to do it all the way, to do it fully, right? If we don't love something, we talk about giving it a half-heartedness to it, right? But a whole-heartedness is a fully committed heart, a pure heart, a singular focused heart is a heart that's loved. It's a heart that's been given over in love. And so the work that we do, again, not just, when I say work, I'm going to keep saying this over and over again because I know this is when we think of work, we just think of our nine to five. That's not what biblical work is. That's not what scriptural work is. That's not what the idea of work is. Work is everything we do, whatever we do, in word and deed to cultivate life. Whether that's in our homes, whether that's in our neighborhoods, whether that's in an office, whether that's something that we get paid for, whether it's a vocation or a calling, whether it's just simple responsibilities for taking care of ourselves and others. That's work. And to give ourselves wholly to that, to do it, to do it in a, such a manner that we get better at it and we do it in a way that isn't just half-hearted and kind of lazy and just kind of halfway given over requires us to do so out of love. A love for the thing that we do, the thing that we do, the goodness of what it is that we do, that our work actually contributes to creating a good world, but also for the love that comes from the, the, those who we're doing it for, who we're doing it alongside of. That no work is done in isolation. And we can work well, again, by loving, loving the good work that we're made for, the good in it, the good that work is. We can, we can be ones who work well. But that's the rub, isn't it? Remember what Dorothy Sayer says, that Christian work is not just any work well done, but good work well done. Like, if you love something, there are people all around us who love the thing that they do, right? You can probably all think about people in your life, in your profession, that are really good at the thing that they do. 
Think about a lot of sports people. This is really e easy translation into the sports world, the professional sports world, right? They have like a, dr a drive, a love for the thing that they're doing, right? And maybe the, maybe the love is, is for greatness, but at some level it's, it's related to the thing, the sport that they're doing, right? Like that they're, they're driven to give their best, give their all, to always learn, to always grow, to always be in it, right? So like they can do really well at the thing that they're doing, but is the thing that they're doing good. That's kind of our rub, right? That's where it differentiates a little bit for us. How can we know, how can we do good work, work that is actually the God-designed and destined good? And here's the last thing we'll kind of say about work, the wholeness and holiness of work in this series anyway, is that good work is the product of being at work with God. Good work is the product of being at work with God. Or as Paul put it, it's work done in the fear of the Lord. It's work done in all in wonder in the presence of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is never just an idea. The fear of the Lord in Scripture is always the assumption that you're in the presence of the one whom you are in awe of. It happens, think about Isaiah 6, for example, right? Isaiah finds himself all of a sudden in the throne room of the Lord. And he falls prostrate because he's fearful of the Lord. He's in awe and wonder at God. And what is he ready to do in that moment? Any and everything that the Lord would tell him. He's ready to do any and everything the Lord would The Lord says, go. He's, Isaiah's like, send me. Like, I'm ready. Like, I'm it. Like, in the presence of the Lord, he's completely overwhelmed. He knows his own sin. He knows his own brokenness. But he's also compelled to do whatever God would have him do. We do good work when we see, as Paul says to the faith family of Rome, take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering, readily recognizing what God wants and quickly respond to it. Much like the day for us, the day made for us, the Sabbath, the way we capture the goodness of work, the peace and the purpose of God's presence in those six days is in the intentional choice to welcome them and give them as an offering. In the same way we consecrate or set apart the Sabbath, each day's labors are consecrated, set apart for holy service to God. This, after all, is what Jesus did and what he prayed for us to do. Do you know that? Here's what Jesus prayed for you and me. And for their sake, Jesus speaking to the Father, I consecrate myself. I set myself apart for holy service. That they also may be consecrated, sanctified, set apart for holy service in truth. This is what Jesus prayed for you. What prays for us. What he continues to pray for us even now. Offering and obeying. Offering and responding to God's lead are what Jesus did. How he entered into work with his father in word and in deed. How he did the things that he was destined to do among the people he was determined to live amongst. And so we do the same. But this daily offering is not a set it and forget it kind of consecration. It's not a mere ritual. Oh Lord, here's what I'm doing, bless it please, kind of prayer but a going into work with God, a being with God at work prayer, like the one Jesus taught us to pray. You know it. Father, let your name be kept holy. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' prayer is not a plea for something to happen. The tone and tenor, the, the, the pace of it the, and the, the, the tense of it, communicates not a praying for something to come, like as if like wishing it, hoping it would come, but rather is a, a prayer that is a commitment to what is already happening so that one's heart might be aligned, one's sight might be pulled into what God is already doing. It's not so much a, Lord, please let your kingdom come in my life. It's like, Lord, your kingdom's coming, let me be a part of it. Your name is being hallowed. It's being separated out from all the things in this world. Let me be one who contributes to that, participates in that, follows that. 
Your kingdom's coming. Let your will be done, not just in theory, but right here in the physicality and the dirt and soil of my life. Jesus keeps going. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In other words, give us all we need to live and live like you. Give us all we need to live. I know I'm utterly dependent upon life from you, but not just to live, but to live like you. To be free from debt and to free others from the same debtedness. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Guide us and guard us in our participation in your life on earth as it is in heaven. Amidst the turmoils and the struggles, the tendencies for us to get off the path, temptation, and the tendencies for us to run into trouble and affliction, the enemy, the evil one, right? Guide us, guard us as we walk this path with you. Why? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. For your way in life with you is the only means to the true and always good. Amen. Our scriptures reveal what Jesus prays and teaches us to pray. That all day, every day, in our ordinary work, our work shapes the world. We can participate in God's kingdom coming, His will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Did you know that? In your work, in your work. In whatever you do and say to cultivate life. Not just in your vocation, not in the speci- just in the specifics of your vocation. And if your vocation ha- happens to be some like uber-like moral vocation. But whatever you do in word or deed. Whether you're at, in your home with your kids. Whether you're at, at work helping create community in your neighborhood. Or a part of a faith family. Or whether you're in your job, in your office, whether you're a salesperson, a manager, or somebody cleaning, cleaning the toilets. Whatever it is, your good work, your work can be good. It can contribute to God's kingdom coming and His will being done on earth as it is in heaven. It can change the world, shape the world. But it's also true that our work shapes us. And that means the world systems, says Greg Foster, will shape us as we work unless we work with awareness. Unless we're tuned and attentive to God at work. So we can believe that our work matters, but we can get into the middle of the work, and here's what we run into. Is my work good or not? I don't know if my work's good or not. Am I made for this or am I not made for this? I don't know if I'm made for this or not. How do I handle this in a way that's good or bad or otherwise? Like, have you ever felt any of those tensions in life? Or any of those tensions in your labors? Whether in parenting or in a business decision, like, if you wondered what to do, I don't know what to do. How Help me. How, what can I do? Well, the tension that we feel in not knowing what to do, the tension that we feel in wondering if what we're doing is good, the tension between our ability to participate in Jesus' recreating of the world and the world's ability to reshape us, to, 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 to tell us what we, what we think we should do, in its own way, or to create anxiety and doubt and frustration in us, is why I believe Paul urges us to offer and obey, to consecrate and respond to God amid the work of daily living. So let's real quickly look one more time at Romans 12, 1 through 2, and let me see if I can help, help you see what Paul is trying, I think, to help us see. In Romans 12, verse 1 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, more literally, the word mercies there is compassion of God. And it's the idea that it's trying to capture is a deep feeling of empathy that God has for the tension of life in the kingdom come and not yet fully so. That God has a compassion, an empathy for the tension that we feel in the midst of our daily labors. In the midst of living in the kingdom come and the kingdom not yet. It's not that just God is merciful and that he's forgiving. That's true, right? We think about, we often hear, like, by the mercies of God, because God will forgive us of our sins, right? We believe that. That's a good thing, right? But remember, what's the good news? Not that God is simply for us. That's a part of it. But that God is with us. That he's not just chosen to forgive us of our sins, but he's chosen to be with us. To make us new by life with us. To share, make us holy by his holiness. Not just by our efforts. 
right, to help to walk with us into the maturation of our full selves. That requires not just mercy, but compassion, a willingness and empathy to get alongside. And so, because that's who God is, because we believe the gospel, and that's what, who God is, we are to, as Paul continues, to present. Now, again, maybe all this is just common, common, like you just read this verse and this is how you see it. But to present means literally to stand close beside. In close proximity to the one whom you're handing things to. To present doesn't just mean, like I make it on a list. Here's, what, here's my to-do list. Okay, God, here you go. Some, some point today, come and grab this and run with it. Now the idea that, that Paul is trying to capture is that because God is compassionate, you can come into his presence ready to hand over something to him. That when we pray even the Lord's Prayer, that we pray it like envisioning Isaiah 6, in the presence of the King, in the presence of the Lord, that we're there. It's not a far distant thing. It's not a, something that's a hoped for thing. It's because God's right in front of me, I can give you this thing. Because God's right in front of you, I can hand over, I can bring, I can lead in other words, I can choose to give over my body, your body. Present what? I'm choosing to give over, to lead myself, to hand over what? Your body. Not your heart. Maybe we'd expect that. Not your spirit. Maybe we'd expect that. But your bodies. Your physical actuality in the world. The mechanism through which you speak and act. The mechanism by which you do work. You present the, the, your very self, your very labor to the Lord as a living sacrifice, as a life offering, not something given to be burnt up, given to never be get brought back, but rather something given over to. He says a living sacrifice. It's meant to differentiate in the minds of those who knew that they would take offerings whether they were Jewish, they would take doves and lambs and all those kind of things, or whether they were pagan, they'd take all sorts of other kind of articles and, and monies and food and all that kind of stuff. But either way, when you, gave, when you sacrificed it, you just kind of stepped away from it and it was, it was no longer yours anymore, right? But not a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice was, was this is what Paul's saying, is an offering not of giving up something, but giving, something, giving yourself over to the thing in which you're, you're being given. You're giving yourself over to God, in the presence of God. Again, maybe that makes total sense to you, but that's the first thing you think of when you read it. But just in case, I wanted to be specific. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, consecrated or set apart. This goes back to, again, the offering part, the consecration part, Jesus' prayer. Holy and well-pleasing to God. Well-pleasing to God. You present your labor, you present your life as something that delights God's heart. As something that is a delight to God's heart. As the actual thing that God wanted for you to do. How do you please God? How do you do good? Because that's pleasing God, right? Like that would be the good. If we're, how do we work good? How do we do good work? Work that's pleasing to God? We offer it, first and foremost, we offer it to the Lord, in the presence of the Lord. We offer it over as a holy service to the Lord. Because that's what pleases him. That's what he longs for. And then Paul says something that's really interesting. He says, this is your spiritual worship. So let's stop right there for just for a second. The word spiritual worship in the Greek. I'm sorry for all the language stuff today. My bad. But just, just bear with me. The Greek words used here have complex meaning. You might notice if you have the ESV, if you have your Bibles with you, but you might not. Um, for example, that the footnote reads, your rational service, which seems really different than your spiritual worship, right? Those, those things feel really different. Rational service, spiritual worship, right? Couldn't be more dichotomous, right? At least in all the way of, of our thinking. But again, especially the Greek language, especially what Paul's trying to do, he's trying to capture an idea of something, helping us 
wrestle with kind of these paradoxes and dichotomies of like what, what faith in life really feels like. And he'll have been to see what, what this thing is that we're actually doing. These actual words, the words mean, kind of taken together, divine reasonableness. Or what is logical to God, a logic that works through divine reasoning, through faith, to produce a seamless life. So it is this idea that offering ourselves in the presence of the Lord to the Lord, our labors of living to set apart for the Lord, is something that's logical to God. It fits in the reason of God, the mind of God, what God is actually after, to produce a seamless life in which every decision and action can have profound eternal meaning. And, here's a fun combination. Here's where they get the tension of it. So that march kind of makes sense. It's our rational service. It is presenting ourselves into the thinking of God, the mind of God, the heart of God, so that the things that we do with words and with actions actually align to something purposeful now and forever. But it's also the worship which is rendered by the reason or the soul. This is how we work from the soul. This is how we worship from the soul. A performance of sacred service. Our primary place and means of whole being worship is not what we do here, but how we live out of here. And I know we know that, right? But like the Thessalonians, Thessalonians, Thessalonians. A good little reminder never hurts, right? Spiritual, argues Vincent Boquet, means human beings made alive by the Holy Spirit. To be a spiritual person is to be one made alive by the Spirit of God. A human now able to be responsive to God and operate more in accordance with God's desire for us. That's what spiritual worship is. We often think of this in terms of our eternal character, which is extremely important. But this also extends to our ability to be those who can better operate as stewards of God's creation in the world of work. Welcoming and offering our daily living to God directly, as Jesus taught us. Not in hopes of blessing, but in expectation of alignment with his heart and with his labors, allows us to enter into the labors of our living, our work, confident and competent, to do good work, to do work that matters now and forever. For it's work that aligns with God's delight and God's desire. Despite what is often sold to us in religious circles, however, we do not have in our scriptures a detailed manual for living. I think in some ways we could all say yes and amen to consecrating our work to the Lord. And probably most of you do it, right? You wake up each day and you give this day to the Lord. Maybe you don't. Maybe it's not your part of your daily rhythm. But, it's, but it can be. At some level, it hits your mind at some place, right? But then you get into the work, and you find out that you really still don't know, even in offering your, your work to the Lord, what to do. Certainly, we have in our scriptures the foundations for life now and forever, the basics of kingdom living, all we need for life and godliness, and all that we need to be equipped for every good work, right? We believe that. But still, there's no Google function for the specifics of your particular God-designed and determined living and labor, is there? Wouldn't it be nice if we could Google God? Like, I mean, honestly, right? If we could YouTube our way through, like, life good with God? I mean, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be helpful? So why doesn't God do that? Why don't our scriptures give us all the things that we need in the particulars? That does, it certainly doesn't mean that just because we don't have the particulars that, that we have to figure it all out on our own. Remember, the good news is the opposite of that. It's that God is, again, not just for us, but He's with us. And that we are now a part of His family. The same truth means we can discern and know what to do when it's time to do it. What to do when you don't know what to do, again, argues Steve Cuss, is the question that fuels our burnout in life and labor. Doesn't it? Whether it experiences exhaustion or apathy, I don't know what to do. Am I supposed to be doing this? Is this good or is this not good? Am I made for this? Am I made not for this? 
after a while, that always leads to some sort of burnout, whether exhaustion or just simply giving up and apathy. And sometimes it manifests in our careers, but sometimes it manifests in our homes and our relationships, right? Maybe one part of our work, our work outside of our relationships, the work that we get paid for seems to go well, but the work at home doesn't, or vice versa, right? But it doesn't have to. At least that was what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2. Verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be forced into a shape by this world. Do not be forced into a mold by this world. Do not be forced into a way of living that keeps you in a constant loop, that separates and divides the work of, of pay, the work of not pay, that tells you to only work four days and to play for three days, or to only work five days, or to not take a day of rest, or to work seven days, or to, to make whatever, the, whatever the, the voices around you, whatever the, your home life has told you, whatever the culture has told you, don't let that be the thing that shapes you. Don't be conformed to it. But be transformed. Be transformed. And I put this on, on here because I think this is pretty crazy. I don't, or crazy, it's helpful for me. Transform literally means to be changed after being with. Be changed after being with. It, it's not just like a, it's not just a, a, pray, Lord, transform me, and then, like, hoping that there's just, like, a little, like, light that goes off, a button that gets pushed, and then we're there. It's a change that happens from being in the presence of something that changes you. A change that occurs when you're with the thing that can change you. So don't be conformed and shaped by the things around you the voices around you, your own tendencies, your own culture, all those kind of things. Don't be conformed by those. Press into, into a mold by those. But be changed, transformed by being with God. Being with the actual changer, creator, and recreator. How? By the renewal, that is the completion of the process, the sanctification or uh, renovation that is for your better. Be transformed by being with into fully who you're meant to be. That's what renewal means. Of your mind. That's interesting. You offer your body and you're changed by your mind. Transformed by your mind. Well, think about it. The mind is the faculty of perceiving. The faculty that perceives seeds planted. The gospel planted in you. God's life planted in you. It perceives and recognizes goodness and hates evil. It's the faculty of seeing what is good, true, and beautiful. It's the faculty of faith. Be renewed, completed by being with God as God tra changes, completes, fulfills, allows you to see what is good, true, and beautiful. That, in seeing, recognizing, perceiving, you may also test. That by testing you may discern. That by testing you may approve, show something is acceptable, demonstrate something is good. That you might be convinced and convince others. What is the will of God? What is the good and acceptable and perfect will? What is the good in your labors and your daily living? That when our mind is renewed... We can actually be convinced in our labors and our working and convince others that we're walking in step with what is good, acceptable, and perfect. We can actually see the things in front of us to do and how to do them. It's a pretty incredible reality, right? To think that, again, like this is nothing new. What do we talk about in Psalm 32? What did God say in Psalm 32 that he would, he would prefer for us to do? To be taught and counseled by his presence rather than pulled by bit and bridle, right? This is nothing new. This is actually how we're meant to live. And not just in our, in our worship world, in our spiritual world, in our world of, of faith, but in our very daily intimate labors, right? In everything that we do, whatever we do and say. 
And so therefore, our work is holy because we're made for it. Work is whatever we do to cultivate a life. We work well. We do, it, we do a fine job at it. We get better at it. We give it our all because we love it. We love the work, the, the thing that we work for, even if we don't actually like the individual work that we're doing. We love the thing that we work for and those we work with. And we do good work because it's a product of being at work with God. And being at work with God, giving our daily labors of living to God's good design and destiny, to His kingdom come and will done on earth as it is in heaven, is by responding to what we perceive, recognize, and working with God that allows us to navigate the difficulties and the decisions that we face in our work, whether that work is in our home or in our office. And so maybe that means we've got to stop and breathe for a minute to listen. Maybe that means we have a different pattern of waking up into each day so that we're in step as we go each day. And so what does it look like to offer and obey to be at work with God? And this is going to be so unnovel that you're going to get frustrated. But here's what we do. We follow Jesus. This is literally what almost every following Jesus practice, spiritual discipline practice, if you want to use a different language, is meant to aid us in doing. Literally. I think we had slides, but it's okay. There we go. Be with Jesus. Become like Jesus. Do what Jesus did. Literally, everything that we talk about Everything that we do is done and designed so that we might be ones who can work with God. We can be at work with God. Not just be with God in this place. Yes, we want to be with God in this place. Together. We think it's a really special thing to come together, to gather in a place and have a moment to set our minds, attentions, and hearts, affections upon Jesus. But why? So that we can be ones who follow Jesus into our everyday roles and relationships, into our work. These habits and routines we include in our regular and seasonal schedules are intended to help us attune and be attentive to God with us so that we might be at work with God. This isn't an exhaustive list by any means, but some are to help, are to help us in our offering. Some of our routines and our schedules, right, help us to wake up and offer our lives to God in the presence of God. Not just to offer our lives to God in lip service, but to actually let ourselves enter into the presence of God, to be aware of God with us, and to give ourselves, to lead our bodies into life with God. Some of them are to help us see, discern, and respond to God in the midst of our daily labors. All are intended to help us mature into those who live whole in a holy rhythm with our God. They are not the end, and they're not the goal. The end of your life is not that you did all these things. The end of your life is that you lived good life with God for others, right? That you're forever with God, with others. These are not your goal. My goal is in telling you this is not to get you to do more of these things. As if like there's some sort of number. If you just get it right, you've got to figure it out. But my goal in telling, my goal in telling you this is that you know that you know this. This is just, again, like Paul to Thessalonians. Why, way of reminder, you know these things, so do these things. They are not the end nor the goal, but they are a means to help us offer our body to renew our minds as we participate in the good, perfect, and pleasing will of God. While we don't have a detailed manual, the particular procedures of our God-designed and destined good work. We enter the daily labor with God already at work and with others who are made for us and with whom we are made. Here's how Paul puts it in the verses immediately following his encouragement for us to be at work with God. I think this is pretty, pretty incredible too. After Paul tells us again, offer your bodies Offer your work. Let your offering to God be done in a way in which your mind is renewed so that throughout the days you're with God, you're actually able to discern, to test and approve what is good, perfect, and pleasing will of God is. He's assuming that's the way life works. And then instead of going into 
I don't, I don't know what I, I think Paul would go into, but here's what Paul does go into. He says, For the grace given to me, I say to everyone in verse 3, among you, do not think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Do not think that yourself is, again, in context, do not think of yourself, this isn't just simply be prideful. This, is sim- this means do not think that you're one that has to, somehow has gotten to where this rhythm doesn't matter. This routine doesn't matter. This way of life doesn't matter. This offering to God, your labor doesn't matter. That you're living in such a pattern that you don't need to do this anymore. But think with a sober judgment. Recognize your own tendencies and brokenness, the brokenness of the world around you, and the reality of how God, how the world really works, how God's really working. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Each according to what God has given you. Each according to how God has actively been in your life. Right? For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Paul goes from this idea of your labor being offered to God. Goes in this idea, this, this then compelling you to say, okay, don't ever get past this. You're never going to outgrow this. This is going to be your rhythm, your way of waking up each and every day into the work with, with God. And then immediately he goes into, hey, but remember, part of the good news is that you're with a bunch of other people. You're individually members one of another who are doing the same thing, who are after the same thing, who are meant to together walk well help and help one another walk well and live well to the fullest of their potential, to the glory of God. And so, because I talked way too much, you'll have to, to, um, to help one another outside of this place. But here's what I want us to do just for a couple minutes before we just kind of just go back into, into our work week or um, maybe even less of a structured week because this, we're in the summer and things are unstructured in the summer and all that kind of stuff. Let's just take a second just to reflect on a couple things. Think about what you're going to be doing at your work tomorrow. What is your labor tomorrow for living? Again, whether that's your thing you're getting paid for or the thing that you're the interest in life, whatever, what are you doing in word and deed tomorrow to cultivate life? How will you be with God at work? How will you offer your work to God in the presence of God? Lead your body into the presence of God. And how will you, in the presence of God, be attuned and attentive to the transformative voice, to the transformative eye side of the Spirit, to help you see and discern what is good, perfect, and pleasing? How do you do those things? If you don't know how you'll do those things, then you probably won't do those things, right? And then how can others join you, pray for you? encourage you, equip you in your work with God. Maybe you don't know. So ask. Maybe you're not sure exactly how. You'll have the strength and energy of the time to do it. So ask somebody else to call in to remind you, to text you. Maybe you've never actually done some of these things by yourself. And so maybe somebody could help you by doing it with you. Maybe you can join somebody else in their labor. Maybe there's somebody here, not here, that you can pray, encourage, and equip in their work with God. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to pray for us. And we'll just have like three minutes of quiet. As you reflect on these questions before we end in song and as we enter into another week of holy labor. So pray with me. Father, I thank you for your grace. A grace that not only saves us, Father Lord, in the sense of of our eternal life, but a grace upon grace in Jesus 
that allows us to live now, allows us to see now your kingdom come and your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And though, Father, we know that there's troubles and difficulties in it, we also know that you give us all that we need. That you guard us and you guide us. So for my brothers and sisters, Father, I pray. I pray for the willingness to welcome and to offer tomorrow's labors and the days to come to you. To find, Lord, in offering, Father, Lord, a, um, a transformative connection of you already in the midst of their labors, Father, that allows them to see, to know, to discern, to be convinced and to convince others of what is good, perfect, and pleasing. And the courage, Father, when they see, to act upon it. There's a piece of being able to see that means we'll also see what we're not supposed to be. So I pray for myself and for others that not only will we see what we are to do, but Lord, in seeing what we're not supposed to do, we'll have the courage to say no, to walk away, to do something different, to respond differently. just as much as we have the strength to say yes. Thank you for your time. Thank you for time to be with you. In your son's name.
welcome to stand as we close together in song. St. Jerome uh, once said, uh, he who works prays twice. And Martin Luther followed up on that and said, he who works faithfully prays twice. And so this song will be kind of a, a prayer for our work. And in a way, I guess it's kind of like what Augustine said, which is he who sings prays twice. So we'll just be doing all that. takes me places I don't want to go Christ be for me and my heart aches with sorrows I hit the road Christ be with me and the care of my family all that I Christ within me and I'm worn and exhausted shame that I met Christ defend me well, I rise up God who labors, we ask you to guide us in our work this week. Be with us in the details, the to-do list, the chores, the tasks of our days, the labors we don't love. Help us to remember that you are the God who sees the sparrows and counts the hairs on our heads. You are with us in the details of each day, miraculous or mundane. Be with us in each moment, each encounter with another, the phone calls and conversations, the emails and texts, the meetings and memos. Help us to remember that you are the God who made us for each other, never to be alone. You are with us as we work and live together in conflict or in harmony. Be with us in our questions, our wrestling or worries, wondering how to pay the bills or find new work, searching for answers to our deepest questions. 
Does our labor matter? Does our life matter? Help us to remember your answer is yes, a deep affirmation to the worth of our lives. You created and called us. We respond and we go forth, ready to serve you in all that we do. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. If you were here last week, that's the the end of day Sabbath candle that we're lighting in remembrance of the day of rest that we've just concluded. So, yep, light into the new week. In Jesus' name, amen.